the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, pure violence without object. This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machine and Conscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, Drop us a book at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. And today we have a special guest, Dwayne Russell, who is the author of many books. I won't name them all, but some of which are After Post-Anarchism, Lacan and American Sociology, Lacanian Realism. I could go on. You're very prolific, Dwayne, and we really appreciate having you on today. Thank you so much. Uh, Pleasure to be here. One of the first things I wanted to ask you about, and you mentioned it when we were discussing before, you got your master's in sociology. Was this at the University of Trent? Is that correct? I began my master's degree at Queen's University. Queen's, studying, okay. Yeah, studying in sociology under Richard J.F. Day. And, uh, and then I... I um, I was suffering from a crazy panic disorder then. This is before I put myself in psychoanalysis. And uh, I, I dropped out and Richard saved me because uh, he helped to retain a lot of the funding that I would have lost. And I ended up doing the PhD in sociology at the University of New Brunswick. Right. Okay. Or sorry, the, the master's in sociology at the University of New Brunswick. Yeah. Okay. I see. And then you went on to do a PhD also in Canada, correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, that was at Trent University. Okay. I have a very similar experience with dropping out of, of grad school and having something that I, I don't know if I would call it a panic disorder or an anxiety disorder or just being burnt out. And I know mm. I, had, I had some faculty try to intervene in a way like that, but I, I think I was, I was too far gone. So it, it's nice to hear that that you had someone that could go to bat for you and to, I guess the follow-up question would be, you mentioned entering analysis. Was this your kind of first foray into it? Is that how you got introduced or did you already have an interest beforehand? Sort of. I'll try and give you the short end. So I remember I was, I was (laughs) really an attentive reader of Derrida and you know, at that time, it, it was quite unfashionable, particularly at the University of New Brunswick, where I did my undergraduate degree. It was very unfashionable to be reading this stuff that I thought was post-structuralist. Of course, right. this is the American incarnation of French continental theory, what they call post-structuralist. But I was reading that, and I remember in the honors seminar, at one point, and it was a it was an attempt to to identify myself with a particular tradition of thinking. I remember saying, well, Derrida is not quite radical enough. You know, I'm going to have to choose somebody who's slightly a little bit more obscure <laughs> and identify with them. You know, Zizek has this, this interesting uh, anecdote. He always says, if, you know, if 
If you want to seem like you really know what you're talking about in in the world of, uh, I don't know, classical composition, you know, you don't say that you listen to Beethoven or you're interested, you know, you got to say you're interested in Mahler because he's just obscure enough. It was the same thing with Lacan for me. So I ended up identifying with Lacan purely as an arbitrary choice Mm. and primarily (laughs) through the work. Yeah, it was purely arbitrary. And it was through the work of Zizek, of course. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, And then, you know, I ended up because I was really a scholar of anarchist theory at this time. Uh, I was very much involved in a lot of the anarchist organizing that was happening in the streets in in Canada. And, um, you know, I was working to develop the anarchist library dot org. I was working at anarchistnews.org and so on, all of these. And I also owned an anarchist cafe and bookshop co-owned. That's really cool. And so, on. so I was, I was, I had this obscure interest in Lacan, but I was still very much tethered to anarchist thinking. And so I went to study anarchist theory with Richard J. F. Day at Queens, who was a bit of a Lacanian. And that was my, that was my gateway to Lacanian anarchism. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> This concept kind of blew um, Taylor's mind a little bit. I guess it's because, you know, we've, this past year, we've had on now, what, I guess you're the fourth had on who is published in the Paul Grave Lacan series. You know, um, we had Isabel Millar on, we had Peter Matthews, which I can kind of see his book about mastery right, yeah. kind of fitting in with this, um, I'll call it Lacanarchism or something, <laughs> right? We also had Leon Brenner. So we've mm. had, you know, it's, it's kind of, Isabel said it best when she's like, how Lacanians wouldn't necessarily agree on, even if they like kind of divide themselves into schools or groups, they wouldn't necessarily agree on on a lot of things. And so it's interesting to see this, the strand of anarchism and, and Lacanian, well, especially in the Lacanian realism and, and your sort of argument about this first order real, which I, I want to ask you about uh, in a minute. You know, it, it did definitely blow my mind. It was, it's just interesting how rich and how varied not only Lacan's primary works are, but the works on him can be. So I, I really enjoyed that. I guess the follow-up question, since we, we can like kind of finish up with introducing your education, I want to ask you a little bit about the European grad school. Now, am I correct that I read somewhere, I'll say maybe your Wikipedia page, that you <laughs> that you were a um, you were kind of an assistant to Zizek mm. and Badu at the European grad school. Do you want to say a little bit about your yeah. your work at the grad school? Um, sure, sure. The European graduate school is a singular institution. You know, first, if I may, I'd like to say a bit about my decision for going there. It was a total leap to faith. You know, um, I was at Trent University, which I, you know, I I owe a lot of my thinking and my my education to Mm -hmm. the seminars that I went through at Trent University. But I remember thinking it's a really simple thought. You know, I was thinking, okay, I'm reading Zizek. I'm reading Butler. I'm reading reading Alenka Supons. I'm reading these people, Baudrillard, you know, so on. And yet, if I write like them, I'm probably, and, you know, I think I have anecdotal evidence of this, I'm not going to do very well. So why not? Why don't I just study with them? And I, I sold everything I owned. I'm not kidding. Everything I owned. And I was, I was very poor. And, and I had, uh, I was married and she, uh, Jody, she supported me through this. I had a newborn baby. Soren, and we just went to this university that existed in the Swiss Alps. I wasn't even sure that it existed. 
<laughs> I thought when even when I landed, I'm like, okay, now I'm gonna find out is this place actually real? Because there is it a mythical? Yeah, yeah. Well, there were debates that it wasn't even a real university; it didn't actually exist, that it was a fraud, and all this. So I went there, and on the the very first thing I heard was a, a discussion from Wolfgang Schirmacher, who hmm. said, "Look at these fellows. Look at the people here. They're can I? Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Oh yeah, oh, of absolutely. course." Please. Okay, they're fucking, these people are fucking crazy, okay? Yeah. But look at, they've organized, they've organized the world around their craziness, and somehow mm. they did it. Yeah. And I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And it was, it was one of the single most transformative experiences of my life. I met Zizek for breakfast the second day after I arrived, and I, I ended up working as uh, an assistant for him, which just meant, I mean, he called me one of his slaves, <laughs> and, uh, yes, and that makes that, that sounds like him. <laughs> yeah, and I I think at the time I think I was one of his slaves, and I wanted to be one of his slaves. And um, you know, I just held the camera. I wrote some blurbs uh, for YouTube, little, little things like that. But I edited a book for Badu titled "The Subject of Change" for Atropos Press. Did that involve translating, or or, or was that was that? It was pure transcription. It involved a little back and forth with uh, Alan and myself uh, regarding some of the verbiage in there. And it, and it involved writing a preface that I very much regret writing. In fact, we're, we're currently uh, creating a second version of that book. And I propose to remove the preface, let the work speak for itself. Yeah, I've, I've been there before. I, I, I kind of regret the translator's introduction I did to uh, philosophy and non-philosophy by Laura Will. But, you know, the, these are things that you you learn from. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I guess now at the European grad school, which I think it's it's amazing, the story about this leap of faith and the circumstances surrounding it, uh, that's, that's, that in itself could be a narrative. You know, if you think, if you're needing more ideas for books, you know, telling this, telling this story, was this postgraduate work? Is, is this basically what you were doing there or? It was a second PhD, um, okay, but I didn't, okay. do, I didn't end up doing a thesis. So it's what in America we call an eight all but dissertation PhD, mm-hmm. basically coursework. I did editing work. I did some media work. I used to do some work on social media for the school and stuff like that. But I, I never wrote a dissertation there. Yeah, I guess. Was it around this time or was this was this before or after you? I mean, you, you mentioned all the things that you that you kind of were, were involved in with, um, you know, the anarchist library and, and even the, the cafe. I read that you also started a, a journal, correct? Right, right, right. So uh, I edited this book that ended up being the most cited book I've ever produced, which I wrote nothing in except for the preface with Saria, uh, with Saria Everin, Turkish anarchist. And it was titled Post-Anarchism, A Reader. Yes. And and that book was very popular, but unfortunately we couldn't I couldn't fit everything in it that, that mm-hmm. I wanted to fit into it. So I said I, I want to do something with, with this other material. And so uh, you know, it's kind of like killing two birds with one stone. At the time there were no open access anarchist studies journals. Huh. Um, and in fact, the most popular anarchist studies journal was of course anarchist studies. Uh, edited, I think, by Ruth Kina. And it's, I think, still to this day, closed access. Mm. And so basically, you know, I'm very, very poor at the time. And I'm thinking, okay, I want to read the most, the newest, most interesting anarchist scholarship that's being produced today. And yet I can't access it out there. So I'm going to bring 
all of that stuff to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's very yeah. selfish. It was a very egoistic thing to do. And so I, yeah, I, I produced this, uh, this journal anarchist developments and cultural studies. Now I just call it ABCS. I, I prefer it to just be the letters and and we we put out our first issue titled Post Anarchism Today, which had wonderful stuff in it from Louis Call, Alejandro de Acosta, and some others. It was a really uh, I'm really proud of it because it was both online for free, and we also had paperback version. Now it's um, it's being edited by Alan Antliff, and it's housed at the University of Victoria. So is that is that still uh, ongoing and, and accepting? Okay. Are you still involved with that? Or is, or is that is that like a baby you've kind of given off to, to, to others to, to raise? Yeah, I think I've, I've mostly, I mean, I'm, I'm in title associate editor, mm-hmm. which is um, very gracious uh, for <laughs> Alan to list me as that. I, I really, I really appreciate that. But I'm, and I realize I'm going to, I'm going to upset some people, maybe Cooper. <laughs> I'm not sure. We'll see. But I, I'm not convinced that anarchist theory in of itself is uh, producing the sort of work that we need it to produce anymore. I'm not saying I've abandoned anarchist theory per se, but it seems to me that uh, it's sort of, it's reached a a certain plateau for now. And not the good plateau that that we find in Deleuze and Guattari, right? It's it's more of a... It's perhaps precisely that plateau. In fact, I mean, in in the sense that it's very... um, it's become uh, somewhat obsessed with uh, epistemological pluralism. Uh, okay, gotcha. Uh, a sort of hardline subjectivist tradition in the sense of what the Americans call post-structuralist, the decentering of the subject. Mm-hmm. Sterner has been transformed, I would say, into a post-structuralist thinker increasingly. I read him more as a nihilist. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And, and I think that you know, there was sort of, you know, it's a naive sort of classification. But what I saw this journal doing was opening up anarchist thought to what Freud called another scene. Mm, Yeah, it's latent presuppositions, specifically. And I think post anarchism, that's basically what it did. It opened up anarchism to a sort of, let's say, reflexive meditation, what Alejandro de Acosta calls direct action at the level of thought of its own presuppositions. And what it found was that, okay, it had maybe in a, you know, and I know there's a lot of controversy over this label, but in its classical discourse, I wouldn't say era, but in the classical discourse, it had a certain type of ontological essentialism. Mm, okay. Yeah. And, and I think what the journal contributed to was a sort of second moment, a moment where we can sort of critique this idea of, uh, of an essential human nature, the ground upon which our politics seems to uh, walk, and uh, and think about another position. Unfortunately, I think what's happened is it, we kind of stayed there, and we weren't able to return to a notion of, I don't know, let's say capital R revolution. Mm-hmm. We had mm-hmm. this sort of what Todd May called <coughs> tactical political philosophy, you know, these sort of, uh, okay, we're going to have a little fight here, we're going to have a little fight there. Or we have, as in the work of Richard J.F. Day, this sort of what I would call a withdrawal from the engagement with direct a direct confrontation with, uh, with power into sort of autonomous zones and so on. But there was no way ultimately to return to a notion of a political universal that I think is so essential for radical politics. It's like in anarchism, we're so afraid of the very word universality. 
It's like universality always equals hegemony. It always equals authority. It always equals repressive power. It all and 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 I'm I'm not convinced that we should abandon the category of universality. And here, this is where I agree with Saul Newman, and I think Saul Newman is somebody who's very close to my position. We also shouldn't disband with the category of the subject. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of contemporary, uh, let's call it anarchist theory, and a lot of that is post-anarchist, has uh, gotten rid of both. Yes, I and, okay. and so I think we, we very much still need that third moment where we return to a certain type of universal political project. All yeah. of this is making clear the conjunction of Lacan, Zizek, Badu, right? That you tie together, um, I believe it's chapter 11 of Lacanian realism on the knot, right? And, and you kind of situate the event of Badu in terms of the real Zizek's act in terms of the symbolic Lacan style in terms of the imaginary and weaving together the the Baromian knot right um I, I kind of I think that makes it very clear this notion of also what you kind of work through in, in chapter 10 where it's this question of an obsessional active or passive political position right this notion of either overestimating the political action or underestimating it or overestimating the situation or underestimating it and and kind of navigating these things. But it does make clear specifically with, I mean, I, I know that when I was, when I was just head, uh, you know, I was just so deep into Deleuze's work when Badu started to be available in English, that was something that fascinated me with was this notion uh, you know for example this question of staking a claim on truth it's it's very uh, it makes very clear his i don't know opposition is the right word but difference from a lot of the post-structuralist thinkers like baudrillard leotard deleuze who kind of are in this movement to how do i say accelerate the decadence of values specifically of truth finality unity and these other things. So all of that makes it very clear, but I, I, I don't want to hog the conversation. Cooper, did, did you, uh, did you want to? I would just say, I mean, it's good to dust off the sociological imagination a little bit. I've been, um, you know, we've been working our way, Taylor and I, through anti-Oedipus and um, symbolic exchange and death. And we've been, we had forays as well into, into most and, um, Claster's work as well. And so a lot of that has been sort of jogging my memory in terms of sociology. And I've been really enjoying that sort of quasi anthropological, sociological discussion and, and sort of soil and kind of tilling that because mm. you know, I, have, I have my undergraduate degree there. And so mm-hmm. one concept that I have brought up in previous episodes, I really to, I, I didn't know if it was a necessarily made a lot of sense, but was um, Cooley's The Looking Glass Self. Relative, mm-hmm. relative to the concept of faciality from Deleuze and Guattari. But I wonder if, I don't know if there's any relationship. Taylor and I, I think we even discussed this in our last episode about, what is it, the mirror the mirror stage and uh, the looking glass self-concept. I just thought that was kind of interesting, I guess, in terms of, I guess, Lacan and the symbolic, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Maybe how that, the contrast between that sort of, con- those concepts, etc. If you could maybe talk a little bit about that broadly. Yeah, I was going to say, Dwayne, I, I think it's chapter four of what Lacan and American sociology, where, where you, you do go into 
some of this question with Cooley. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. That's right. That's right. You know, my position has changed. You know what Lacan used to call his books, of course, he called the poop allocations. <laughs> yes, and, right. Uh, basically, you know, I was, I was the trash, telling, the trash, the trash publications. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, basically when I when I write one of these books, if it's been published, it's because I've given up on it. Okay. <laughs> I see. I love it. But, Got it. So my position has developed a little bit. I if you don't mind, I'd like to try and weave together Please. something no, go based right off of what I just heard you say, Cooper, because I was really taken by some of the things you were saying as a sociologist, you know. What I find interesting, I'll begin with this. I'll say Recently, I don't know if you're aware of it, but I've I consider Slavoj a very good friend. We email each other at least once a week, sort of thing, and he's a very good friend. However, this is my disavowal. <laughs> however, I have been in the last, let's say, three to five months, in a moment of let's say a bit of a debate, and it's a debate concerning fundamentals with Zizek. Okay, what are the fundamentals? Well, I was thinking it has something to do with maybe even what you could call the sociological imagination. You know what's interesting about the sociological imagination is, and I think Zizek has a sociological imagination. You know, he's a sociologist at the Birkbeck Institute and so on. But what I like about the sociological imagination is it was developed by a Marxian thinker, of course, C. Wright Mills. And C. Wright Mills develops this notion of the sociological imagination. What is it essentially? I like to think about it as a sociological equivalent of something that Marx would have called commodity fetishism. Take as a simple example, okay? You have, and this is an example I'm stealing ruthlessly. You should steal some of my ideas. I have no control <laughs> of putting this on record. He'll cite me in one book. He'll forget to cite it in the other. Yeah. Anyway, so this one I'm just ruthlessly stealing from him. He talks about the cup of coffee at Starbucks. Okay, you buy the cup of coffee. It's the commodity, whatever. But what you're ignoring are all of the social relationships among workers that have gone into producing the cup of coffee, right? Well, you need some sort of a sociological imagination to see those relationships, the wider social determinations and this sort of stuff, okay? So what in Western Marxism I find really fascinating is this notion of totality. Totality, which is implicit in, I think, the notion of commodity fetishism, it's implicit in the sociological imagination. It's precisely this idea of seeing beyond the object or whatever to the totality of social relationships mm -hmm. that exist that give rise to their social relationships or whatever. Well, I think Slavo Zizek's entire project, in some sense, is closer, and this is why he's closer to the early and mid Lacan. He's on the side of totalities. Sociology has for too long been on the side of totalities, mm. or I should say totality. The exposition of the underlying latent determinations of our social relationships and this sort of stuff. Coolly, what is the looking glass? In a nutshell, the looking glass self says, I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. In other words, I am a subject within the totality of social relationships that we call the big other. This was Lacan's mirror stage, right? Lacan's mirror stage was basically this idea. So the notion of totality that defines the project of Zizek, not that do so much, but Zizek specifically. And I admit Zizek is quite inconsistent and at times he's he breaks from this project. But this is this is in a nutshell my critique of the limitations of Marxism. This idea that the subject is always split by signifiers within the field of the other, the totality of, sig of signifying relations, however you want to call it, okay? 
okay, that's that's wonderful. But what if the big other doesn't exist? You know, this is supposed to be the big secret of psychoanalysis. The big other doesn't exist. If the big other doesn't exist, then we no longer exist anymore in the world of totalities. No longer exist in a world where the sociological imagination is going to get us anywhere. You know, the idea of commodity fetishism and so on, how far is this going to go in helping us understand a world where the big other doesn't exist anymore, where we are no longer a subject within symbolic, within a field of symbolic determinations. So my break is precisely here where totalities are one side of an issue that's worth exploring. But I'm interested more and more in the category of jouissance. And the category of jouissance is extremely important in the late period of Lacan because it's the period of Lacan where the big other no longer exists. And so what we have are singularities. We have these singularities, these, these um, not subjects, but what he called parletre, speaking beings, mm-hmm. who are in monologues with one another. They don't know how to speak to one another. They're speaking different <laughs> languages. There's no intersubjective field. There's no latent determinations. There's a certain enigmatic and perhaps traumatic. In the French, the word trauma is very nice because it sounds like whole. Mm, Um, Yeah, right. And I think increasingly, I I am very much on the side of of the late Lacan, if I could say that. And I read the early and middle Lacan through the prism of the late Lacan. And I think that this, this is why I think sociology needs a new paradigm. And I think that uh, I've approached a certain point where I think Zizek's work is not necessarily speaking to our, I would say, it's not necessarily speaking to our time in the way that it could be. And I understand Zizek's critique of, and I'll stop here, but I understand that Zizek's critique of, for example, Jacques Lamelaire, if you're familiar with this, with Malaire of the New Lacanian School and the World Association, his critique is that this idea of the big other doesn't exist is foolish because clearly, you know, there are still social determinations and this sort of stuff. And I would say, yeah, that's true. But the big other doesn't exist still has consequences for us as social actors. And so I think um, I think all of that is just to say, you know, I think, you know, what I've written in my book, Jacques Lacan and American Sociology, and, uh, and uh, my work that is that has been indebted to a lot of Zizek's ideas. There was something of a break, I would say, this year. I just sent out a book proposal actually on this, where I'm finally putting out my big statement on, it's it's a book that's going to be called, hopefully, Singularities, where I'm finally writing in such a way that I wouldn't say that I'm Zizek's slave anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Along those lines, another little sociological nugget that I've been harping on in these same discussions relative to anti-Oedipus and uh, symbolic exchange and death, etc., would be that going back to Durkheim and Durkheim's notions of, and this is also maybe a good way to discuss totality and perhaps even singularity and kind of what you were just working through relative to, I've been thinking a lot about organic and mechanical solidarity and deviance and Durkheim's theory of deviance and its function, the functionalist approach that he takes to it and sort of asking this question, does there have to be sort of this ostracized other that is excluded from the to-, to sort of constitute the totality, like to build, to sort of resurrect the the organic 
sort of social bond, right? It's like Jurassic Park for social bonds. Like we have to sort of figure out the, you know, that's a, a big question that I've been wrestling with. Is this a necessity is, or how does one, how do we resurrect the social bond perhaps is a question I've been thinking about. Yeah. I think Durkheim's, a lot of Durkheim's work, I think, and this is something I'm kind of, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I'm I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting what you're saying either. I think implicit in a lot of Durkheim's work is that our social bonds are the sort of social cohesion has something to do with a world that is either regulated and regulated in some sense by prohibitions or not regulated or integrated. You can think about that in terms of across the imaginary axis for Lacan or mm -hmm. it's disintegrated. But he never thought to ask the question of how those who are not regulated and perhaps disintegrated, how they might exist in the world. And this is why I think today we need a theory that can account for that. And that's a theory of singularities. Mm -hmm. It's a theory of, of how people can hold themselves together in a world of weakened prohibitions where we no longer have, of course, the universal prohibitions of you shall not, you know, the price of admission into a social bond. It was the old Oedipal social bond. Of course, the price of admission was you must renounce. Well, what? You must renounce your jouissance. Mm -hmm. What Lacan would say, you must negativize your enjoyment. You must give up some of your enjoyment. But, you know, clearly we're not in that world anymore. We're in a world that rules precisely through what I call in my work, particular affirmations. This is a development beyond Zizek's work, I would say. He doesn't call them particular affirmations, where the jouissance of particularly identified segments of the population is affirmed. Mm. You can choose, you can, you, you can enjoy yourself, and you can be a part of a social bond precisely through your enjoyment. What are the new problems that emerge in that sort of world, in a world that's characterized not by prohibitions, not by integration, as Durkheim would have said, but by a sort of collective effervescence by, uh, you know, because I think Durkheim's concept, I'm thinking spontaneously, forgive me, but no, I think it's... Durkheim's concept, and he took it from energetic, and I think it's good that he took it from the from the theory of energetics, um, just like Freud was taking his work from the theory of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. It's a theory of jouissance. And uh, a part of my work, and it's particularly in Jacques Lacan, American sociology, has been to return to the classics to find the theory of jouissance. For example, in the work of George Simmel, mm -hmm. George Simmel discussing stimulation and the way in which we're hyperstimulated in the, in the metropolis, for example. So if we're in a world that has a non-negativized non jouissance, where jouissance refuses to be negativized, what new fascisms are, are emerging? Mm. And the example I always give, it's, it's a, I think, a really clear one. It's a bit, a bit outdated now, but I choose it because it's a little bit far from the American continent. And so people are not going to be too upset with me for choosing this particular example, but it's the example of the Citizens' Amendment Act in India where it's precisely through the particular affirmation of the jouissance of particular segments of the population, and they list them in policy. It says, we will allow citizenship to Jains, Buddhists, Christians, Sikhs, and so on, dot, 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 dot. Particular affirmations under Prime Minister Modi, 
but a complete implicit rejection of Islam. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Muslims constitute a very large population in India, and there's a whole history there, but they're just simply not affirmed. Their jouissance is not affirmed, you see. And so it's not, you know, the old fascism was really interesting, the fascism that we would have saw in the classical era of sociology, what we would call the classical era, even though it's actually quite modern. It was, you know, we explicitly prohibit Freemasons, homosexuals, communists, and Jews. And we put that into law. It was quite literally put into law at the level of prohibition. We explicitly reject you. Okay, which is what led Zygmunt Bowman, the sociologist, to claim that the Holocaust, and very controversial claim, to claim that the Holocaust was in fact the natural consequences of modernity, of the Oedipal mm-hmm. social world. I think what we see in Modi's policy And I can give other examples, but I think they hit too close to home, so I'm not going to do it. But I think what we're seeing is a new form of fascism that implicitly writes out particular forms of enjoyment, what I call enjoyment, it's shuasant, by explicitly giving you permission to enjoy the rights of citizenship if you're explicitly identified. I think it's a much more, it's, it's a very dangerous, it's an insidious form of mastery. This seems like a different way of forming an excluded other or a scapegoat instead of it instead of as you said this being these major prohibitions of you're not allowed it's as you say these particular affirmations of those who are allowed and then is it is it kind of what's the word is it kind of already implicit or even explicit that some are not affirmed some identities are not affirmed and therefore they're kind of they're included in the situation as Badu might say but they don't belong Right. They're this kind of or maybe they're there's they're just uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, an excluded remainder or or something. Right. I mean, I'm trying to think of the best way to to formulate yeah. this. Yeah, I, I like all of those. I, I like every one of those. Uh, but th- the problem is, you know, it's entering the level of policy, mm-hmm. of course. But it's a different type of policy because the idea of policy, we tend to think about it as rules, but right. they're not exactly rules. But I think this is a pervasive cultural phenomenon that we're witnessing everywhere. You know, like, God, I was at, you go to any popular bookstore in the world today, you go to the poetry section, what you're going to find, maybe you'll still find Baudelaire and, you know, in I'm in Russia, so you'll find Pushkin and so mm-hmm. on. But you're going to find poetry, you know, it, it began with a Canadian poet named Rupi Kaur. Zizek took this example. He did cite me. He did cite oh, yeah. me. This okay. And this is poetry that basically, it's not about confronting the impossibility of love, you know, or anything, or about, you know, living with the specter of death or, or anything like that. It's not that deep. It's instead like these little words of wisdom. Yes. So like on page on page one, it'll say like, the poem will be like, It's not that you were not good enough. It was that you were so good that he could not see it. You know, and then on the next page, it'll say something else. And I was thinking about how this has pervaded every corner of our universe. Like you buy Coca-Cola, you know, and and here, Zizek's idea of Coca-Cola is very interesting. Since we keep talking about Zizek, or I keep talking about Zizek, his idea of Coca-Cola, you got the ideological injunction to enjoy. I think what he missed was the way in which Coca-Cola operates in a world of particular affirmations. It's not just enjoy, but you must 
form a social bond precisely through your particular form of enjoyment. So like Coca-Cola bottles today, they will have something written on the side. It'll say like soulmate or father. Oh, this is a great one. Father. You get your nom de pair in the commodity form. Mm. Like it'll say like a friend and you buy the Coca-Cola and you share it with your soulmate and you actually produce the social bond precisely through the commodity form. And so I'm really evil. My idea is, okay, I'll buy soulmate. I'll sit down with a, with a person. We'll drink it. But what happens when the Coca-Cola is gone? Like, is she not my soulmate anymore? What am I supposed to do? You know, and then so you're I just, I have to go. It's the union of egoists. Okay. You just disperse. With... <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're right. You one, just... one... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, or you just go buy another one that says like, uh, ex-girlfriends are awesome or something like that. It'll be like a different, you know, I mean, like you, you're right. You, you drink the Coke and then you're left with the, with the plastic non-biodegradable remainder that you just, you throw out or, you know, you recycle if you're, I'm sure some people maybe collect them because I believe you, you've, I forget where, but I know you wrote about this example uh, with, you know, even there are particular names, you know, so I'm searching through the different Coke bottles for a tailor, maybe. Uh, you know, um, you know, that or 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 a Lindsay, you know, from for my wife, but I don't know if they still put mm-hmm. do they still put names on them? <laughs> I haven't bought a, a bottle of coconut in a long time. I think you're right. He did cite you, was it in um the failed absolute? I believe he he cites or maybe he he's maybe he's used this example from from you uh before, but you extended this meditation on these kind of affirmations, these daily affirmations to uh I believe to like Facebook posts and the way you can make, you can kind of, I don't even know how it is, Mm -hmm. but you have that, you have the color, you choose your color screen and then you write your, your kind of nice, you know, positive, almost beautiful soul affirmations and, and kind of share them there. They can be quaint and nice. And it's nice to, to, to give these, uh, these kind of truisms, but they become, as you say, they become this way of forming the social bond. Obviously, that's something that we've thought about with Baudrillard, and that'd be like a great example for him. You can imagine his riffs on it. And uh, mm-hmm. and part of that, I mean, part of what we've gotten out of it is the exclusion of death as being a part of modernity's way of forming social bonds. You know, so obviously we could extend the examples, but I do think this idea of particular affirmations is interesting. And I can, you're kind of giving us a little trail of breadcrumbs to follow i mean i i can i can it's like maybe desire. a line of flight Go reminds ahead. me of desiring production yeah yeah the discussion on the coke and the repetition of it i guess the repetition yeah, of the particular little instances of desire but you know what's interesting i think it, it's also and it's leading me to this moment i admit it's a really new moment in my thinking and i'm, I'm willing to abandon it I'm not kidding. You know, I'm willing to abandon this position, but I was thinking about like how far, particularly Marx from the economic and philosophical manuscripts and everything before. I'm wondering how much of that can really help us today, because you talk about desire and production and so on. And I was thinking like you look at even people like Yanis Zarifakis and and Greek former Greek minister of finance and so on and and what you find is increasingly our social worlds are not defined by a mode of production as a sort of linchpin it's instead what George Ritzer the American sociologist calls prosumption capitalism which is a neologism of production and consumption and what does it imply I think it implies 
precisely that this domain of alienation that hitherto defined our relationship to what? Well, in the philosophical, economic, uh, economic and philosophical manuscripts, it was estrangement from our species being, estrangement from other workers mm -hmm. in a factory, estrangement from the productive process and the activities and so on. But we were estranged from things. But isn't it the case that in a mode of presumption, which is what I call in my latest book, The Era of Singularities, it's not that we're alienated inside of the field of the big other anymore. We're not alienated from, we're alienated, we're estranged between. It used to be that strangeness was like repressed, let's say, you know, like back when I was a kid in high school, they had this event. It was called Beat the Freak Night. Beat the strange person. You go, you mm. beat up the, the strange person. You know, you want it to repress and get rid of the strangeness. Today, strangeness has been elevated to a principle of the social bond. It's cool. They say, let your freak flag fly. You know, mm. it's cool to be strange today. So our social bonds are strange, which means that we're not estranged in the ways that we used to be anymore. So look, like when I buy a product now, I feel something of my human essence in that product. I feel tethered to the product increasingly. And this was why I think the early Marxists, Walter Benjamin and so on, were interested in the domain of kitsch. You know, I think mm -hmm. kitsch pervades the aesthetics of our economy today. What's happening is that we increasingly see ourselves in the product. You know, I buy a Big Mac, but I choose the fucking ingredients. It's my yep. choice. And it began with, as George Ritzer says, Ikea, but I'm going much further than Ritzer's claim, you know. When I teach, I teach at the School of Advanced Studies, University of Tumen. I say whatever the hell I want to say. I don't think anybody understands what I'm saying. I, you know, it's, uh, but, but I say whatever the hell I want to say. I don't feel alienated in a sense. I don't feel alienated from my, the fruits of my labor, my productive activities and so on. Where I feel alienated is trying to deliver the singular message that I was giving in that classroom outside of the classroom to people who weren't there with me. Mm -hmm. So we're alienated today, not within an overarching social bond, but between social groups. We are, I mean, people call that tribalism or whatever. So I, I think there's something here. Farifakis, I think, doesn't go far enough. He calls it neo-feudalism. He, mm. he says capitalism has evolved out of itself. We're not in capitalism anymore. You know, we're in platform capitalism. And what that means ultimately is that we're tied to the, to the farm again, like a surf. You know, the only difference is we're not toiling. We're doing the work of enjoyment. And the problem is, is how do people on Facebook speak to people on TikTok between mm -hmm. farms? You know, so I was thinking, and then I'll shut up. I was thinking about, you can tell I was a student of Jiu, can't you? There was a lot of transfer and stuff. I was thinking about how Eminem, the hip hop artist, you know, Eminem, he was canceled on TikTok, but on YouTube, he celebrated. It's like there's no relationship between these two farms, in a sense. So I think the problem is precisely that we're not in the world that was described by Marx pre-1844. We're not in that world anymore. And I think it's quite fundamental that we're not, like, we're fundamentally not in that world. It's a much worse world. It's even more horrific. We have fundamental problems of relating to other people between social groups today. And that's producing what I would call intense paranoia what Freud would have called doubles in his essay on the uncanny, we project the inhumanity that we refuse to see in ourselves out onto other people. Mm -hmm. That person's transphobic, not me, that right. person is, and so on. And so like, take the final example. This is Shizik's example. I really am quoting him a lot today, but it was the example of when President Biden met a few months ago with President Vladimir Putin and 
Biden looked at Putin in the eyes. And what did he say? He said, I saw a killer. And I actually agree with Putin's response, which came later on RT. Putin said, "Okay, you just saw your own soul reflected back at you. I think it's exemplary of all of the problems we're having today, problems that are emerging in the newest social movements, problems that are emerging between generations and so on. And I call that the problem of singularity. It does lend itself to the the old reply, you know, takes one to know one. But I would inflect it a little bit and say he didn't just he wasn't just projecting himself onto Putin. He was also trying to project the diametrical opposite of, say, President Trump, who, you know, is Mm. ironically, they are still uncannily Mm. similar, you know, in policy Mm -hmm. and and especially continuing policy and and just basic day to day shit. I mean, how much has really fundamentally changed besides the well, we don't have Trump's fun tweets on Twitter every day anymore. Right. So that's gone. So we have, you know, sanity restored. But really, how much has changed besides the sort of there's less of a spectacle, if you will, emanating from the the presidential office. But but otherwise, you know, things on the ground, the situation is, has remained the same. So so I, I kind of feel like calling Putin a killer is is trying to be is he's also unconsciously thinking like, what's the one thing Trump would never say? Right. Because Trump would be like, oh, we're buddies, we're friends. I want a good relationship with Russia, all that. All mm-hmm. that shit, you know, so there, there is something to that, too, of, of this. I'm not I'm not this this playing at, at not being Trump while at the same time actually not actually being indistinguishable to a certain extent. Yeah. Bes- besides in words. Right. So it's, it's just words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Well, I was just going to say it's a really troubling time because I was reflecting on this the other day. God, it's weird when theory makes you depressed. <laughs> um, but oh. but uh, I, was, I was thinking about how deep this, this wound is of our inability to relate to people and how we're so close to a major world war right now. Like We're mm-hmm. really close. Do people even realize how close we are to World War III with the alliances that are happening between Russia, China, India, and so on? Basically, West versus East, mm-hmm. the NATO expansion and so on. We're so fucking close to a war. And I think it has something to do with this way in which we're projecting, I guess, these doubles out into the world, and we're unable to find a way to relate to one another, to hear what each other has to say. Like the old time of, what did Lyotard call it, Jean-Francois Lyotard, an incredulity toward meta-narratives. Today mm-hmm. in international relations, we have an incredulity toward international treaties and like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, international dialogue, a fundamental mm-hmm. incredulity. And it's not just there. I think the crisis manifests itself in our romantic lives. You know, fuck, people are going on solo moons instead of honeymoons now. I hadn't um, heard we, that, but that's that's great. <laughs> Go on, sorry. <laughs> that's it. You know, that's that's all I was going to say. Well, Coop, you had you had something you you wanted to add? Oh well, I mean, it, it's sort of not related entirely, but a couple of things relative to Sterner that I wanted to talk to Dwayne about. One would be maybe try to sell. At least where you are now, can you sell Taylor on whether or not he should read the unique in its property? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I could sell it. I think there's a, a a wonderful, it's a real shame nobody reads 
well, not nobody, but it's not as popular as a lot of the other stuff, like secondary literature on Stirner's work. I think his name is Wittekind de Ritter. If you're listening, you could Google that. I'm not sure if it's him. Google his name plus Stirner, who's done some really fantastic work on Stirner, which defends Stirner against the position that he's a post-structuralist, which I think mm-hmm. is very important. It's a very important thing. How could I sell Stirner? I mean, Stirner... I tried to sell him as a post-structuralist, so that kind of foreclosed oh, already. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. I, I, I think I think Cooper was trying to say that he has a lot to contribute to the the thinkers we've been reading in the past year. Uh, you know, libidinal economy, anti-Oedipus, symbolic exchange, and death. I think in in that sense that Sterner has a lot to to contribute to to that dialogue of the the post sixty eight trio. Right. That's kind of how he sold him to me. While you're thinking or, or, or hold that thought, I wanted to know if you wanted to talk at all about your admission in, I'm not sure if it was in Lacanian Realism or in the Lacan and American Sociology book, but you kind of describe a breakthrough moment, a eureka, epiphany moment with an analysis about the creative nothing. Yeah, do, do that was actually say, my next question. So. Well, okay. So <laughs> or leading into that, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I wanted to, because I know that that's a concept that Coop has, has kind of, I've osmotically absorbed <laughs> from Cooper in our discussions and, and uh, you know, Leotard and the Great Zero and these, these other things. I'm just wondering if you wanted to say, if it's too personal, we don't have to get into it, obviously. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to say anything, uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> about my personal life, but I don't remember the Eureka. I mean, I wrote the book like 10 years ago. I I don't quite remember it, but I can riff on it a little bit and see, tell me if this is what it was about. I I have a little intuition that it might be about this, but so first off, I'll say Stirner saved anarchism for me. I was reading Stirner. Well, I was reading Stirner alongside Kropotkin, alongside Bakudin, Malatesta, and so on. But then I, I became involved in the tradition, an obscure little tradition known as post-left anarchy that came out of California, Wolfie Landstretcher, Bob Black, and so on. And, you know, I saw something very early in anarchism that concerned me. I can't say all of anarchist thinking was characterized by this particular, let's call it a discourse, but a significant amount of it was. and. I would call it what Lacan called a hysterics discourse. Uh, Now, hysteria in psychoanalysis is a truly important discourse. We wouldn't have psychoanalysis without hysteria. Psychoanalysis was invented by the hysterics, Mm -hmm. by Freud's hysterical patients. I love that claim Uh, you make, by the way. It's not really a claim. It's basically a fact, but go on. Yeah. You know, it's this sort of, I mean, whatever language game you want to use, you, you, you can call it this resentment in the Nietzschean sense, uh, this sort of slave morality, or you could call it, Richard J.F. Day calls it a back structure, this idea in which the anarchist social movements, or at least a, a particular segment of them, have, have a certain type of relationship to power, provoking power precisely to account for itself. And in awaiting this provocation, the master or this the system of mastery, power, whatever the heck you want to call it, nonetheless remains legitimate, precisely as, as a response to the question that's being asked of it by the hysteric. Lacan mm-hmm. said at an experimental university, I think it was around 1968, you're probably familiar with this expression, as revolutionaries, what you aspire to is a master. You will get one. 
And so it's for that reason that I'm teaching a course at the School of Advanced Studies this quarter titled Desiring Mastery, the Theoretical Foundations of Anarchism. It's meant to be a little provocative, but it's this way in which... Uh, can I audit this class? <laughs> uh, in fact, you, I think you can. Uh, but it's, it's this way in which, you know, Lacan, more than any other, showed me a radical anarchism, a nihilism, a deep anarchism that goes all the way. He said that the hysterics discourse is fundamentally a rotation on the master's discourse. Mm -hmm. I can't get into the math themes, the sort of algebra on it, but mm -hmm. I mean, I could if you want it, but it would take some time. But it seems to me that that's a problem. And so if you want to be an anarchist, you got to kind of interrogate that way in which you are implicated in the system of mastery. Maybe Foucault and Deleuze would call it microfascism, whatever. You know, the idea was that in a classical sort of tradition, you have on the one hand, the sort of what Saul Newman called the place of power, against which the anarchist, as a beautiful soul, launches their attack. And the idea is you just get rid of that place of power and you can hold hands and dance in the streets and, you know, everything's fucking amazing. But that's a problem. So in my own development as an anarchist, and it's a development that comes through experience, not through any theory, I went from thinking there was a place of power to thinking there's a finite amount of registers of power. Mm -hmm. And this is how I advanced beyond Saul Newman's work in Bakunin and Lacan book. Okay, now you have uh, Emma Goldman helped to add another place of power. Okay, you have you have the state, you have patriarchy, you have the racial order, you have, and you can keep adding. Saul Newman mm -hmm. calls it the the shopping list. You can always add, and there's always another one you can add, another place of power. At some point, you realize everything's power, as Foucault would have put it. <laughs> so where do you where do you go from there? And Lacan said. The only counterpoint to the discourse of mastery is the analyst discourse. Yeah, right. As far as I can tell, it was the only discovery of a discourse that, that offers a counterpoint to that of mastery. So Stirner offered something that wasn't offered me, a place that wasn't hysterical. He, he wasn't interested, as far as I could tell, in simply in these games of positing yourself as a beautiful soul who confronts power. He was critiquing Feuerbach, of course, for only renewing the religious forms of mastery in the form of man. I think Nietzsche mm -hmm. might have stole some of those ideas and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so Stirner, at the time, I think uh, his work gave me something to sort of hold on to when I didn't anymore believe in the, in the hysterical discourse of, of anarchism. So that's it seems interesting then that that Stirner would would not be, you know, as Fink says, like getting off on knowledge on this interrogation of of the master to produce a certain knowledge. Are you implying that perhaps he taps into that analytic position? I don't think he does. Okay. Um, well, it's complicated. Here, I'll I'll see if I can say something about it. Maybe this is what you meant by the Eureka moment. So it took me a while to discover this. But it was Lacan who helped me discover this, reading Lacan. And Lacan, unlike, well, as far as I can tell any other psychoanalyst, he discovered a new object. Okay, you have different psychoanalytic objects. You have the feces and da 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 He discovered this new object that he called the nothing, hmm. the nothing object, which is the object of love. And so nothing itself could be an object in the psychoanalytic mm -hmm. tradition. And it seems to me that Stirner knew something about this. 
the nothing as an object could be the last defense against what Lacan calls the real, which is trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think what Stirner did was very clearly, he severed his relations to the big other. He was an in, what some people call an individualist, which means that he cannot be divided and jouissance cannot be divided. I mean, that's what it means that it can't be negativized. And so he, without having any sort of type of social relationships anymore, that defined, let's say, the mutualist tradition in anarchism or the tradition of uh, well, mutual aid, you know, in, in Kropotkin or, or the, any of these traditions that you lines of thought that you find in Bakunin and in others. He identified with the nothing as an object. He said, I am nothing. It's an identification. I am nothing, not in the sense of emptiness, which would imply a lack, which is how Saul Newman reads it. I don't read the nothing as lack. I read it as jouissance, which is not lack. Oh, that's good. Uh, Jouissance is where lack itself is lacking. And so he identifies with nothing, and he makes it a form of stabilizing himself, what Lacan would have called, I think, a symptomatic solution. But the problem then becomes, how does a singular nothingness like Stirner, how does he relate to other singularities in the world? And it's not clear that he can. He had this naive notion of the union of egoists. We find similar ideas in the work of Nietzsche and others. And I like that position a lot. I think he advanced beyond what we see in the work of Bakunin and, and others. But it's not clear what, obviously, what a union of egoists could be, except maybe a, a small Lacanian reading group or an affinity group in the anarchist tradition or, or something mm-hmm. like that. And, and maybe that is something quite wonderful. The, the last thing I just wanted to say about Stirner is that I think it's wrong to read egoism, the ego, in the sense of Freud. What he referred to as the ego wasn't what Freud thought of as the ego, mm-hmm. and it wasn't what Lacan thought of as the ego, you know, this sort of speculative relation, mm-hmm. specular relation, you know, like the looking glass self I see, you know, like the ego, you know, even for Freud, you had ego ideal and an ideal ego. You know, there's with the ego ideal, there's the the ideal self the knowledge that you have of yourself, the image mm-hmm. that you have of yourself, and then the ideal ego or whatever the opposite one was. It's this knowledge or image I have of myself as if from the viewpoint of somebody else, the big other, the looking glass. Right. I don't think Stirner had any mirrors. It's interesting that when Engels drew his portrait, you know, he's off to the side sort of contemplating among, he's a lonely individual. And even the glasses, right, are, they don't necessarily have eyes behind them. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's good. They're like mirrors yeah. themselves, right? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I like the I like okay. this notion of the creative nothing as jouissance. That's really fascinating. That opens up a whole series of like my mind is percolating relative to desiring <laughs> production and guattari, um, because that's the sort of little thing I've been trying to figure out how to attach, how to figure out how to combine those machines. Where's the sense of where's the conjunction at? Mm. sort of pull the knot reverse the knot through the other side so to speak yeah 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 well i think i think with the nothing for sterner he was tying a knot for himself otherwise he wouldn't have had a knot it it would have been right you know it's like you know i had this moment in psychoanalysis where i was trying to describe and i didn't know what i was saying it took me years to figure out what i said there i was just you know how Hegel, was it Hegel's critique of Schelling? He said like the night in which all cows are black or something. Mm. Yes. 
I had that moment, but I never read Schelling. I mean, this is in, this is more than a decade ago. In psychoanalysis, I was trying to describe the way in which nothing had become a point of identification for me as right. a person with anorexia. I have anorexia, which surprises some people. But, you know, this way in which I said, okay, you have the nothing. Yeah, the black spot on the cow. But in my world, when it's truly dark, my name, Duane, it means darkness. When it's truly dark, you can't even see that nothing. And it's this way in which you get devoured by a more primordial nothingness beyond the point of identification upon which Sterner is stabilizing himself for tying a knot. And so my eureka moment in my analysis now I remember it, was discovering that I, <laughs> I didn't have an eating disorder. I was an eating disorder mm. in the sense that I didn't just enjoy not eating particular types of food, mm. but my whole life was defined by, you know, I enjoyed not putting particular forms of art on the wall. I enjoyed Malevich's Black Square. You know, I, everything mm -hmm. was about this sort of, my, my world was pervaded by a certain type of nothingness. And I realized that I was using that to stabilize mm -hmm. myself. This is what Cooper and I were, well, we were trying to elicit the return of the repressed. It sounds like uh, a little bit, you know, from, <laughs> from, you. Yeah. Uh, of course we could, well, I, I have follow-up things, but I'm glad that, that yes, I, mean, I do believe you in your book, you put it in context with the, the Schelling critique from, from Hegel. And so that, that makes it clear for me as well. But all of this is, I mean, all of this is interesting. I mean, you know, you know, Cooper, you mentioned Sterner and Guattari and you have up on our screen, I mean, like Guattari from the, one of his very early intuitions that I've always found interesting and that we find in Anti-Oedipus again is this, this question of death drive for institutions and this notion of sort of thinking of the death drive outside of individual or even organic realm, which is kind of what Freud focuses on more. And, and, and Guattari is thinking about it institutionally. And this is how he kind of develops the grid and transversality and all these other things. But I, I kind of see it as perhaps little doses of, of creative nothing, right? You know, these little doses of because he, he quotes, uh, he quotes Nietzsche, it, they quote Nietzsche in Anti-Oedipus when they say like, what is it? States, armies, churches, which of these dogs wants to die, right? And in this notion that that's, it's precisely their will to power, not to allow for these doses of creative nothing, these doses of death drive in order to uncreate their foundations and their formations. That's something that they have to, that drive they have to repress to a certain extent in order to continue their their ritual, their sort of, what's a good word for it? I forget how Bonumin describes it, their mysterious foundation of authority. Now I'm selling myself on, on reading some Sterner, so I can, I can maybe uh, investigate this at a future date. I know Cooper has, has done a, a reading, a whole episode list. Have you guys finished the, the book? I know you've gone through almost all of Lar it. Largely. I think there was a tiny bit, but we've done maybe it was five or six episodes. I think we do want to go back and do Sterner and his critics with that Ooh. crew of folks at some point. But, you know, this the stuff about that you said earlier, just to kind of harken back to something you said earlier about um, about the big other not existing, which made me think of, you know, the sexuation graph with, you know, law or, or woman, however you transcribe it, you know, um, struck out, right? The, the definite article struck out. I was kind of thinking 
you mentioned Nietzsche stealing ideas from Stirner, this notion about the death of God and whether or not part of what you were mentioning about this new era with the big other not existing is, is there some resonance with the death of God and the death of the big other? Like it, it takes time to reach for the implications to reach consciousness. And for us, it's like, we're still too early, right? Or something like this. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so. But you know, you know who, how, how can I put it? If there's no big other, the death of God, what's interesting is that from a psychoanalytic point of view, what it implies is the foreclosure, the death of God. If we're going to take it as homologous with the death of the big other, why not? It's not necessarily the case, but let's presume it is. Then what it implies is that the big other, the unconscious, which is the big other, has been foreclosed. So it's mm-hmm. a generalized foreclosure, which means we're in a generalized psychosis. Now, the best example of generalized psychosis when it comes to the death of God, maybe not the best, but the most extensively analyzed, is Schreber, for whom there is a fundamental foreclosure. Foreclosure of castration, foreclosure of the of the unconscious. Lacan would say he canceled his subscription to the unconscious and so on. <laughs> what, is it, what does it mean? It means precisely that through the foreclosure of the big other, how did okay, how did Lacan put it in his third seminar on psychosis? Lacan said in his third seminar on psychosis, what is foreclosed in the symbolic returns in the real, which means that okay, you foreclose God. You see God everywhere. Schraper sees God everywhere. Yes. He's, he's literally being fucked by God. Yes. And he wants to, how beautiful it would be to give birth to God's offspring, this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Okay. In a world where the big other doesn't exist, you see the big other everywhere. That's mm-hmm. what Freud called the double. So my wager, and, and it's part of what constitutes my sudden break from the work of well, not the work of Zizek, but from the cornerstone of a lot of what Zizek has to say, is that we exist now increasingly, though not exclusively, in a domain of generalized foreclosure. We are all mad. Neurosis is just another form of madness. I think uh, somebody interested in Deleuze and Guattari would, uh, would probably agree with this. The inexistence of the big other still has consequences. And those consequences you can see when you look into Putin's eyes. You can see those consequences when you when you read Jacques-Alain Miller's text, Dossal to Trans, if you're familiar with it, mm. you can see the consequences of generalized foreclosure. It's the projection of your own inhumanity onto the other. And I think this is the, the biggest problem we have in the world today. By the way, on this notion of death drive, just a minor remark on mm-hmm. death drive and, and institutions. You know, there's a sociologist, Zygmunt Bowman, who wrote a little text on this. It's wonderful. It's titled something like life, immortality, you know, immortality and other life strategies or something mm. like that. And he he kind of builds a, a whole tradition of sociological thought around death, death drive, life strategies, and so on. And I find it uh, really interesting. I was just going to say that that uh, vibes with a lot of with like the symbolic exchange of death that we've been doing, but keep going. So. Ah. Well, I was going to say the, the, only, the other place I was thinking about death, and this is, I didn't write about this in that book, Lacanian Realism, was, you know, I was thinking about this a couple of days ago, going back to, okay, how did, how did Lacan learn about Hegel? It was through Alexander Kojev yes. and Kojev's reading of the master-slave dialectic. And mm-hmm. I was 
I was thinking about how, you know, how does it work? The slave basically recognizes that one of them dies or both of them dies, then there can be no recognition. Mm -hmm. So I must withdraw, be a slave, be in the position of knowledge and so on. But maybe Kojev even says this, but what does that say about the master? You know, basically what the slave confronted was death. The slave said, death is so certain here that I'm going to retreat. So what that means is that death as a certainty gave him his position as slave. And so the slave has a certain position to death, to the certainty of death. Lacan said in the 1970s, I think, you can find this on YouTube, Lacan Parlay, Lacan Speak. He says, death belongs to the realm of faith. You are right to believe you will die. If you didn't believe it, if you didn't have total certainty that one day it will all end, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, how could you bear this life? How could you live this life that you have? And so for the slave, death is a category of certainty, which constitutes the slave's faith. But what does it say about the master? In some sense, I respect the master in this position. I respect the master because for the master, he didn't even have that faith in the certainty of death. And, you know, this is even a part of why I've given up a little bit on the category of death drive. I'll just say one more word on this. You know, in early Lacan, he reads, and we could critique Lacan here, and maybe he's wrong, actually. But in his reading of the death drive in Freud, death drive is on the side of demand. And mm -hmm. it's always on the side of what earlier I was calling totalities. It's on the mm -hmm. side of the signifier. The signifier is what is most real in death drive. What Lacan eventually takes from death drive is the concept of jouissance. And he abandons in his late teaching the concept of death drive. And his claim, and it's a controversial one, and it's not necessarily my position. I'm not sure where I stand on this because death drive is a very difficult concept that people interpret in all kinds of different ways. Yes. But he abandons death drive and he talks about jouissance because death belongs to the realm of faith. And jouissance is, is something a little bit different. But his claim is that Freud, with his notion of libido and so on, was moving toward a uh, toward a concept of jouissance. In fact, if you look at some of the footnotes in Freud, believe it or not, you're going to see Freud even use the word jouissance. He used it two times from what I can remember. Hmm. In some of, it was Richard Klein who brought that to my attention. Now, that is interesting. I mean, it, it, it does make sense based on beyond the pleasure principle that you would find the notion of jouissance because, of course, it's, it's related in a certain sense, that text, to me, the two big takeaways that I always recall and remember is, one, the question of anxiety dreams, right? This question that Freud poses, how is it that a dream, you know, because he's, he's thinking about World War One, he's thinking about the soldiers and their, and their war traumas, and he's asking this question, how is it that a dream could be a fulfillment of a wish? How does an anxiety dream provide his fundamental axiom? How does it not contradict that? And he kind of, he makes the claim that it's this retroactive means of producing anxiety to be prepared for the event, for the trauma, to master the mm -hmm. trauma, right? That anxiety in the dream is a means for kind of retroactively mastering. And that leads him to affirm this notion of repetition that I think is fundamental to jouissance. Now, it makes sense to me how repetition and jouissance relate. You've already kind of 
situated it in terms of, of demand and, and, and need, that dialectic that we see. I'm curious about mastery because we've been discussing it kind of this whole time, but, and I suppose it's going to be a cornerstone of, of your next class. So is there, gosh, what is it that the master's discourse produces? The product and loss is object PTR, correct? Is that how mastery, if we're using the diagrams, right? If we're thinking of it, is that how mastery is involved with Wissant, that it is the product of the master-slave dialectic in terms of how you brought it up with Hegel and Kozhev? Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> I probably didn't formulate that as well as I could have, but I, I know that, that Jouissance does kind of transform throughout Lacan's thinking. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it evolves kind of from a perhaps a, an imaginary stage. I know that what Miller has kind of said, there's like six stages of Jouissance, but you're interested in the late Lacan. And so is there a turn towards Jouissance as embodying a, a real dimension in the sense in which you kind of write about it in Lacanian realism, this, that there is a difference between Abje Petia and Das Ding as you work out so clearly that Abje Petia would be the second order kind of symbolic real. It's, it's kind of the leftover after the symbolization of Das Ding, which kind of perhaps like Laura Wells real is foreclosed to thoughts, foreclosed to symbolization. I'm wondering if some of that that work you were, some of what you were working through there, you know, is, is kind of, I guess I'm asking about- Well, this, you know, I, yeah, I'm, go totally ahead. On, I'm totally on board with, yeah, I, I think this question of how Das Ding and Abje Petia resolve, because Lacan kind of abandons Das Ding later on. So I think that's kind of an interesting development too. A little while after he abandons Das Ding, because as you, I think you're right, there was a particular paradigm of Chouassant's or a particular modality of the real. I don't necessarily agree that there are six, I think maybe four, <laughs> nonetheless. But he eventually says, doesn't he? He describes the real as a lawless real, mm. without law. What is lawless? Well, without the nom de pair, the law of the father, the lawless real. And... Um, what I like about the anxiety dream is I really like the way you clearly articulated that in relation to repetition compulsion. I thought that was really wonderful. But it's a movement, I think, from mastery to mystery. And in the mystery of the lawless real, the mystery is, of course, why is there something that repeats so much? So it used to be that in Lacan, the transference that repeated. Mm. But why mm. is there something in the lawless real that repeats, that insists upon repeating, that cannot be eradicated through any notion of a cure? It's still there after what Lacan called the past, after the end of analysis. It's still there. It's a lawless real. And yet the mystery is that it's so lawless, it nonetheless governs our lives. It's like an S1 which is the agent of the master's discourse, because the master, the agent of the master's discourse in Lacan is S1, right? And S1 is not an S2, which means that it's not a consistency of knowledge. Mm -hmm. The master, Lacan says somewhere in his, I think, middle period, says something nonsensical, a sound, like a, uh, I think he gives the example of a Buddhist, a Zen master, you know, it's like a sound. And, and then, of course, S2 is supposed to come to the rescue and say something. But this lawless real is found in the anxiety dream. 
would you believe that Freud called it the real unconscious? That's Freud's words. I discovered that myself. I didn't. I was reading Freud a few months ago, and I saw he actually used the expression "the real unconscious." And he said, "There's something here that is singular about the dream in the anxiety dream, in the nightmare, in the in the dream that wakes you up." He calls it that's the real unconscious, and he says only in a footnote. By the way, I think it's the last footnote of one of the chapters on the dream work. Perhaps mm-hmm. I could find it if you want it. He says, or he writes that. Unfortunately, psychoanalysts have been intent on interpreting the latent content endlessly, thinking that this is what dream analysis is. Interpreting the latent content means reducing it to some sort of a totality, a symbolic apparatus, right. a signifying system, or whatever. He says, "No, we need to go further to the singularity of the dream, which is the dream work itself." You want to know about the dream work itself, something of the real unconscious, and I think it was already there in Freud as, as an intuition that there is something in the dream that resists interpretation. Right. Precisely because the dream work is its own interpretation, it's already interpreting itself using the tools of condensation, displacement, metaphor, metonymy. You don't need an analyst for that. That's just redundant. And why does it interpret itself? Why is the dream work its own interpretation? I'm quoting Miller. That's his phrase. It's its own interpretation because there is something at the center of the dream, what Freud called the navel of the dream, that is a whole, H O L E, and that's the mystery of the dream. And in some sense, it's about elevating that to an S one, taking the mystery and making it a, a form of mastery that I think um, so much of psychoanalysis has been about. You know, because at this point at which the interpretation breaks down and we confront the trauma of our dreams, the trauma of our worlds, that's the moment when we wake up. Can I tell you a personal anecdote of the nightmare I had? Please. I had this because uh, I'm not sure how much time you have, but um, so this was a dream that brought me, I would say, to the end of my analysis mm. and to my new relationship to psychoanalysis as an orientation and as a school, which is a social bond. I was in a, in the dream. I was in a foreign city. Nobody spoke my language, and I kind of was just walking around. And I realized I was looking for somebody, my partner, my romantic partner. And I said she must be in a grocery store. So I started to go. I couldn't find her. I couldn't find. I'm going to give the shortest version possible. I couldn't find <laughs> her. Uh, I couldn't call her. I couldn't remember her phone number. I went up to a crowd of of women and I asked them, like, uh, can you uh, help me? I'm new here. Do you speak English? They didn't speak English. They were examining my head for some reason. Okay, fast forward. I, I somehow ended up back in my apartment. And in the apartment, I realized there were all these IDs across the table, but none of them were mine. Yet I intuitively, I knew that they were supposed to be me. On the face mm-hmm. on one of them was a woman, a woman that I didn't recognize. And it scared me. I said, somebody's stealing my identity. Okay, and then I go to the mirror and I'm like, I'm going to look at what's going on with my head. And I'm looking in the mirror. I realize something looks weird. I kind of step back to see a total view of myself. And what I see is I am a woman. And I woke up. And it was the single most terrifying dream I've ever had in my life. It literally shook me to my core. Literally, I woke up so afraid that it was real and that maybe the dr- drugs were wearing off. Right. I was looking around for objects that I could identify around mm-hmm. me. Okay, so what I discovered when I looked in the mirror was law crossed out with a bar mm-hmm. through it. I discovered that I was this impossible, inexistent entity, what Lacan calls the woman. And 
it was so shocking and unbearable and traumatic for me, I woke up. I think what uh, psychoanalysis aims to do in discussing things like jouissance, the lawless real, the real unconscious, and so on, is to force us to stay in that moment and say, I am what I see reflecting back at me through the looking glass, except what I'm seeing in the looking glass, it's not very cool. <laughs> it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And it's actually not my reflection at all. It's a fundamental whole. And the whole is what Lacan called woman. So I think Freud had an intuition of this. He described it as the navel of the dream. You can see it in other aspects of his work. And so the question is, what do we do with this at the end of analysis? It's the mystery, I think. Yeah, that's all so, I'll say. So like tearing with the mystery is is part of, of being able to, to sort of, well, is that part of the, the working through Right. Is that is that part of the, the past, so to speak? Is this would it be the same as kind of what Zizek talks about with tearing with the negative? Is it uh, being able to, to confront it and not reject it and not immediately repulse it like we are so instinctively primed to do? I don't know. You see, I think for so much of my life, part of my problem was I always went chasing. Let's just be honest, as a heterosexual male chasing the woman. Mm -hmm. This was my, and this was a problem for me because I kept repeating various traumas. I went through two marriages. I, I had some really horrific encounters with women that I fell in love with and chased around the world, different parts of the world. And in the dream, I was chasing that. But the dream ended with my identification with, with that trauma. Mm. I identified with the symptom because you know what's crazy is it's not something that could be cured. The fact that I endlessly chase, you know, women for Lacan, he said, woman is a name of the father. It's a stabilizer. It's mm -hmm. a way to stabilize yourself. And so to identify with it, I think it, it means that that repetition of Jouissance, it's not something that's going to go away. So mm -hmm. I, I embody it. Thank you for sharing that. It's a strange coincidence that I had a almost similar dream. I didn't, it didn't end. I probably woke up too soon. It didn't end the way yours did, but I was in a strange town looking for my wife, my partner, and being accosted by crowds of, of people yelling at me. That's about all I remember. There's some other details that aren't as interesting. Although, you know, in analysis, maybe that's precisely what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm repressing to, to sort of not get to the navel of the dream. That's the clearest stuff I remember is being... Uh, being yelled at by various mm. individuals. There was a moment though, I think that I sat down and was surrounded by a group of women. And one of the women kind of spoke some kind of words of encouragement, maybe like a, like a Ruby Cower poem to me or something. Mm. And I, and mm -hmm. I remember, I remember visibly kind of silently weeping and that's about where I woke up. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying my dream is, is your dream or, and it wasn't, I didn't feel traumatized, but I did wake myself up. So it was at least one of those threshold moments where it was like, okay, but, but, you know, at the same time, the first thought I had was like my brain saying like, I need, I need to get up. I need to prepare. I need to be ready. I mean, it, there was an excitement. I was already thinking about what we were doing here right now, but I do still 
you know, have, I don't always remember dreams and, and, you know, Freud even writes about why we forget them, but I, I do remember feeling strange about that dream because it's not a, it's not a typical dream for me, but, um, this interesting thing about identifying with, is this part of what Zizek is talking about? Like enjoying your symptom. The fact that, as you say, this won't go away, that, that it's just something that we have to embody. Yeah. I, I guess what I'm interested in is, you know, what is the repetition that, that persists beyond the laws of repression. Because of course, Lacan, he distinct we get it, Freud, Freud's a little bit more sloppy when he uses the word repression, but for Lacan, he's very clear repression has to do with it. So we have repression, which is linked with neurosis. You know, if you have various clinical structures, you have hysterical repression, obsessional repression. Okay. And then you have in the perversions, you have disavowal. Okay. And then as its operation, as its mode of negation, if you like, and then in psychosis, you have foreclosure. And so what I'm interested in is what exists beyond the laws of repression when repression isn't operative anymore. And so what, what sort of persists, Zizek calls it a form of enjoyment, but, you know, I make a distinction between symptom and symptom, of course, two different things. And in the recent period of clinical psychoanalysis, there's been discussions about two types of passes at the end of analysis. There's the pass that has to do with traversing the fantasy, mm-hmm. if you like, which has something to do with your symptoms. It's the pass that's on the side of, of the, the fall of the big other. It's on the side of subjective destitution. It's on the side of truth and so on. But then there's another pass that is just as essential, if not more essential. And I think today it's elevated. It's the pass of the Santom. It's the pass of jouissance. It's the pass of learning or knowing how to live with your symptom. And maybe I misspoke when I said it was a type of identification. Spontaneously, it seems to me that I did. I think it's it's a know-how, savoir-faire, a knowing how to live with this traumatic hole and how to how to pass through that hole to find what is most singular about you. Are you correcting your your verbiage here about identification because it's precisely not merely a, an imaginary dimension? Yeah, because you know, there's all kinds of symptomatic solutions. They can involve any register. They don't just have to be in the imaginary. There's different ways to tie knot, and um, <laughs> there's different ways to tie the bromian knot, for example, in Lacan. And uh, you know, neurotics tie a knot a particular way. They tie a knot with the non de pair. But Lacan said in his late teaching when he was reading James Joyce, and mm-hmm. you know, this pissed off a lot of Joyce scholars. I was at a, a modernist studies conference in California a few summers ago, and I, I mentioned this claim. The claim was that Joyce was probably psychotic. I mentioned it to a, a person who, well, is central to the field of Joyce studies, and he was very much insulted. But I do think we have evidence beyond just the psychoanalytic evidence of his discourse to claim that Joyce was mad. But the idea that you find at around this period of Lacan's teaching is that you can do without the nom de pair, mm-hmm. the nom de pair, definite article. You can do without the proper name as an anchoring principle of your social bond, of your psychical well-being, if you like, provided that it's put to use, provided that you know how to use the nom de pair. So you move from what I call proper name to the name as a prop. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, for example, capitalism, contemporary capitalism is a is an example of knowing how 
to use the name of odd name of the father, sorry, odd name of the father, like a Coca-Cola bottle or whatever else. These are these are ways to to hold things together. So yeah, I think know-how. And the neurotic knot is just one particular way. Like the knot that I drew in my Lacanian realism book mm-hmm. that you were talking about earlier, <laughs> I was trying to make sense of this world, you know, and I think I even want a, a coherent model that could bring together my transferential heroes. Zizek, Badu, Lacan. Why the hell? You know, I put style in the imaginary register. I don't think that's fair. I think I put Badu in the real register. I can see what I was saying there, mm-hmm. you know, yep. the event yep. and so on. And I put Zizek in the symbolic register. Mm-hmm. I still think there's some truth to that, but I don't think it's entirely <laughs> fair either. That's Again, that's just one way to read right. Zizek, Badu, and Lacan. And, you know, like I hang out with Lacanians. In fact, I have a, a cartel meeting immediately after this and we're there's five of us in this room and we, we're all like one person is very much in, like a reader of the early Lacan where mm-hmm. you know it's a, the interpretation is still about deciphering the unconscious you know the slip of the tongue is meant to or or the joke or the wit whatever it's, it's meant to reveal some sort of underlying symbolic apparatus and so on and you know that's a perfectly interesting and way to understand Lacan it's not the only way it's Mm-hmm. one particular singular way and it's a, a, an interesting lacanian style and this particular knot here act event and style you know maybe there is something to that um <laughs> except i would put style in a fourth knot i would yeah, put okay. style in the symptom i would put style in the symptom today if gotcha. i were to redo it gotcha yeah. so what what would what would there be yeah, a, what we're playing I guess style <laughs> we have to we have to think of something for for the imaginary then maybe maybe uh maybe 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 Sterner, right? We can <laughs> substitute him for sure, maybe, maybe the creative nothing is is imaginary. Or well, <laughs> the, but 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 after everything you said about you know getting not having the social bond and no mirrors and stuff, maybe maybe it's the real would be the creative. I mean, thing, right? it, you know, it's <laughs> maybe Sterner is is the rupture of the creative nothing. It's you know, it's this would be different language games we could play. But right. uh, I wanted to go back just just to your anecdote about the the Joyce Scholar, and then I assume if I'm reading you correctly. You seem to be saying that they took offense because they thought that calling him psychotic would be to the detriment of his artistry. And Deleuze, I believe it's it's either Deleuze and Guattari's anti-Edibus or it's, it could be Deleuze and Logica Sense, uh, but they discuss this fact that our toe scholars always come to this thing where, well, he couldn't have been psychotic and and make the art or somehow discussing his schizophrenia is, is somehow diminishing his, his status. And they kind of make the claim that's like, no, it's the two, the two are in tandem, right? That his abilities to achieve what he did, to write what he did, to create are fundamentally related. I mean, it's kind of the same way that Schreber's delusions were fundamentally related to the memoirs. They're the meat and substance Mm. of it, you know? Mm. Um, And I mean, again, Deleuze and Guattari kind of fault Freud for dropping out so much of the racial undercurrents, or they're not even undercurrents, they're explicit in the memoirs, and really only focusing mm-hmm. on sort of God as God and Fleshig as father substitutes, um, and focusing on that aspect, which is, that's a wealth of material, but it leaves out kind of deproblematizes so much of the of the inherent racial animations of his delusions. I really like what you're saying. That's fantastic. I, I was also thinking about how like 
What's wonderful about psychosis, if you can say that, is first off, the Lacanian doesn't, psychosis is not like a negative, like a bad thing, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, and it, it's terrible that we have to keep saying that. Like if you say, oh, Joyce was psychotic or somehow it's like, oh, like we're just dismissing him or, or something like that. No, it, each each individual has their own singular knot, their own modes of enjoyment and so mm-hmm. on. And that's, we all have to invent our own solutions. And I was thinking about how in psychosis, it necessitates invention. And what Joyce mm-hmm. did was he invented something for us. Whereas let's say in neurosis, which is certainly its own invention in some way, it necessitates innovation. You know, and and in the world of business, I actually have some colleagues that are in the world of business, so I'm forced to speak this language sometimes. (laughs) They even make this distinction between innovation and invention. The idea of invention is it happens when there's no pre-existing or prior solutions. Right. Whereas an innovation is a metaphorical process. And we know in psychosis, you know, metaphor doesn't quite work. Mm -hmm. So you have a substitute metaphor as a stabilization mechanism what Miller calls a compensatory make-believe function. In neurosis, metaphor is operative. And that's, in a, I mean, let's say, okay, we had a neurotic capitalism. Now we have a psychotic. You know, in neurotic capitalism, you have innovation. You take prior products and then you adapt something to that prior existing product mm-hmm. and you innovate and you do something new with it. But in a psychotic capitalism, we're forced to invent. And with each mm. invention, it fundamentally changes the rules of the game for everybody. All of a sudden, we all have to follow the invention of the, I don't know, the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, dis- yep. it, it disrupts everything. So I really like this idea. And what Malaire developed, it's fallen out of fashion a little bit now, but uh, I don't know when it was. It was quite a while ago. This new category, and perhaps, I mean, it, it became really, really popular for a while, and now it's not so much, namely ordinary psychosis. You've heard of this ordinary we, psychosis. We, we discussed we discussed this with uh, with Isabel yes. Millar, but go on. Oh, okay. So it's just I think what ordinary psychosis opened up, at least for me in my reading, was this way in which psychosis can be much more pervasive than we originally believed. Suddenly, everybody was being classified as an ordinary psychotic. At some point, you got to say, why are we classifying people? Mm-hmm. in these discrete ways. Why can't we see the singularity of each case one by one? And I think that's what ordinary psychosis allowed me to uh, to see. There's a way in which even apparently stable psychical mechanisms could conceal a latent psychosis. I mean, this, this makes very much sense because, you know, when we, just to bring Schrader back up, we can we can obviously talk about him in terms of psychosis or or even schizophrenia in certain ways. I know Freud tried to you know call it paraphrenia or whatever in the in the 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 language never stuck. But there's also obvious modes of uh, of hysteria, right? There's obviously you um you put it nicely about sort of uh the hysteric is constantly needing to provide enjoyment for either the master or the big other. And as we were discussing earlier, you know, Schraber's constant duty, I mean, it's it, he, he sees it as a duty, is to provide this endless source of enjoyment for this God, mm. you know, who, who is always constantly tapping into him. 
with his sunbeams and whatnot. And he, so there is a, there, there's a little bit of hysteria there too, this, this need to provide, to provide mm. enjoyment. And it's, so it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, that, that's definitely a, wow. at least if we take the category seriously and the discourses seriously, there is a sense in which Schreiber too, even acknowledges in the, it's interesting. He acknowledges in his memoirs in the opening He's not writing this for, he's not writing his memoirs for psychologists, for someone like Freud. He says, I have been given knowledge to provide intimate knowledge of religion. He's thinking his memoirs are going to be for theologians or uh, for religious studies, not for psychology. And mm. I think that's another product of his hysteria is this, is this, you know, the hysteria. Producing is, knowledge. Is, yeah. 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 <laughs> that's great. Wow. Yeah, what a wonderful reading. I've, I've never heard that before. But it does it does call to mind what you were kind of saying. Why do we need these categories? And and Freud, so much of the least interesting stuff, although, well, maybe interesting for us, but some of the least interesting stuff on the surface of his reading of, of Schreber is quibbling about dementia precox. But he does, he is thinking about his audience are other analysts, right? Other other fellow investigators of the unconscious. And he, so he is trying to, he is thinking about, it's not really quibbling. It's, it is kind of saying, what is the most useful grouping of symptoms and, and tendencies and these other things. And I think that that's why, you know, with there is, I always think that there is something tongue in cheek about capitalism and schizophrenia, that schizophrenia is this process. And of course, it, they say it led to all these misunderstandings, right? That it's, it's not the clinical schizo- catatonic schizophrenic, right? It's, they were trying to, to sort of be provocative, but you do, you see later in like Machinic Unconscious and uh, even in, even in A Thousand Plateaus, Watery, part of his endless invention, if you will, his psychosis uh, is these inventions of, of these uh, terms and concepts and, and categories, because he's, he even says somewhere in the machine unconscious, something about like, if we're proposing all of these different things, you know, abstract machines and components of passage, blah, blah, blah. It's not to, he says, it's not to like, it's not to put a new layer, a new coat of paint on these old nosographical entities. He is, he is kind of dissatisfied with, you know, these clinical groupings of symptoms. And so he, you know, this is one of the reasons why he can be frustrating and why he can be, you know, why he never really had a school or really had a home uh, because he's, he's, he's so unwilling to, you know, use these conceptual groupings, but I do think they are important to a certain extent. And so it makes sense why, you know, ordinary psychosis would be a step further. It helps to address a layman's understanding of psychotic, right? We we say sociopath, a psychopath, and we also say psychotic, but for the layman, those general terms are all pejorative, they're all negative, and they don't have mm-hmm. any of the the sort of nuance that you were just speaking of. And it could be precisely why the the Joyce scholar didn't maybe didn't understand that you were saying something very specific. By calling Joyce a psychotic, rather than something that an everyday person would see as an insult. Coop, did you uh, did you have something? I may have cut you off. Uh, oh no, I, no, no! I just thought that was a really good the Schraber that master slave. That was a really good insight. I think also goes to like the whole the repetition element too, mm-hmm. right? Because of the remiraculating, obviously the sexual active mm-hmm. elements of that. 
Yeah, the repetition as as of the sexual act. Going, right? Eros and Thanatos. Deterritorialization, reterritorialization. I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> I assume part of the psychosis that Schraber has is... And now, again, you, you would... Dwayne, this is a question for you because I'm still trying to figure out the boundaries here. You know, he has this idea or he ideates. I'm not going to say it's an idea. He has the felt, the lived experience that his body is disintegrating when he's eating you know, his larynx is, is falling apart, you know, when he's shitting his, his anus is falling apart, but he's constantly tapped into by these rays of God that re-miraculate his organs. This is part of where they get body without organs. Obviously they get it from Marteau first, but Traber is having these active lived experiences that his body is falling apart, but God is sort of, because he's tapping into Traber's enjoyment, uh, is able to, to sort of put him back together at the same time uh, at the speed of light. Is this more of an obsessional thing? Is this more of a hysterical thing, a psychotic thing, or is this maybe just something that defies the categories? And again, as you said, that it's a singularity. Yeah, I, I couldn't answer it. I, I'm actually not as familiar with the, the case as, as you are, but um, I'm finding what you're saying quite interesting. Of course, the body is a concept that has become extremely important in psychoanalysis in mm -hmm. recent years. And people were talking, well, do you have a body? Are you a body? Mm -hmm. People talking about the real body, the imaginary body, mm -hmm. and, and these sorts of things. These are long discussions. And of course, there's the body falling apart in the early Lacan, in the dream that's discussed, I think, in the mirror stage article. Mm -hmm to discuss hysteria but uh but what you're describing with with schreber i i'm not sure i mean in ordinary psychosis in the piece by belair ordinary psychosis revisited he describes i mean he's trying to in, in a weird way you know he's trying to describe a diagnostics mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like okay we have the, i think what he calls a threefold externality the old idea was okay. Perverts don't go to analysis, so you have what's called. They're happy. I'm, yeah, I'm basically summarizing Miller here, but he says, okay, you you have a binary clinic. There's a non-depair or there isn't. There's neurosis or there's psychosis. So is there or is there not a non-depair? And then of course you have the emergence there of a fuzzy category known as ordinary psychosis, which can be defined according to Miller at this period of his teaching. It's not so popular anymore by what he calls a threefold externality. If I remember it correctly, and I'm not sure I do, let's see if I can remember what the three are, but there's a sort of Subjective externality, I believe, was one of them. I might be wrong about this, you know, where there's this feeling that, how does Lacan describe it in, in his decree? The subject is not able to conquer a place for him or her or themselves in the world. I'm paraphrasing. There's a sense in which the subject as such doesn't seem to exist as a, as a category, subject being a space of, defined at this period of Lacan's teaching as lack. So lack is lacking. But there's, um, there's also a social externality, I think was the second one. I might be wrong. This is the domain of what Lacan calls, there is no such thing as a sexual relation, which means, in other words, that the subject, whenever he or she or they try to confront an other, there's a brick wall, le mur. And so, you know. Is that another pun of his? No, that's mine. Okay, okay. <laughs> L'amour, Lemur, 
right? That, yeah, my la- the- my last book was titled Real Love, and I was thinking if you if you had it in French, it's you know l'amour, uh, but uh, what it can be like however you want to describe it. real love. L'amour is the word love in French. But I was thinking my new book, why not call it l'amour? Like right. uh, real, I was going to call it in English, real walls real instead, wall, yeah. because I think that's what singularities are about. But so you have this sort of this sort of social difficulty, maybe a lonely subject, if not lonely, social withdrawal, whatever, withdrawal. And the third one is uh, bodily externality, body being defined here. If I remember, I'm weak in this area, but I think by notion of consistency. A consistent sense of body as a specular, imaginary body. So I think uh, what you were describing with Schreber seems like it might fall into the the bodily externality. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it falls into the first two though. You know, because there's a di- there's there's a distinction made here, and I'm, I'm being a bit of a dogmatic reader of of Lacan Miller right now. So forgive me, I'm being a little what's the word. You're being faithful. You claimed an absolute fidelity to, to his. No, no. Okay. <laughs> really? I'm being didactic. In, in Lacanian realism, I, I marked it out where you you kind of talk about this oh, this, fuck. this 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 fuck absolute fidelity to the to the work of Lacan, and I <laughs> and I kind of marked that. I was like, oh well. Anyway, did I write did I write the work of Lacan? It's so uh, well, bad. Wait, wait, okay, no, not the, so bad. Maybe don't, maybe the don't uh, tell me I wrote to Lacan that would kill me. No, it wasn't to Lacan. It was uh, and I'm sorry for this is just a funny aside. Uh, it was just uh, <laughs> I think it was to the to the writings and to who is written and spoken oh, word. I, I'm tra- let's see. I now claim absolute fidelity to the Lacanian tradition and risk oh asserting God. that these new claims regarding Please the real... Okay. Listen, I was, I, was in my, I was in my first year of a PhD thesis program when I wrote this book. I wrote my, my dissertation in, in the first year while I was doing the coursework, and then I just sat on it. Oh, and wow. I, I ended up okay. graduating... And then I just gra- I ended up graduating early and losing all my funding because of it. But anyway, yeah, what bullshit is that, right? So if it was... I thought, of, I thought of, of it in terms of... I would have really loved it. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I thought of it in terms of Badu's fidelity and, and that kind of it makes it sound less militant, but, you know, go on, sorry. Or, or more militant, I think. Oh. Uh, but, oh. but I, you know, I, I don't know. I guess in some sense, um, I do care about the work that Lacan was doing very mm-hmm. much, obviously, very much. And I care about the Lacanian cause, which is the Freudian cause, very much. But Lacan, I don't know. <laughs> I lost my thread. Well, we were talking about bodily externality and maybe Schreber doesn't fall into the other two. Oh, yes. He made a distinction. Yeah, he made a distinction between ordinary psychosis, of course, and not Lacan, but uh, Mm -hmm. but, um, Merler, extraordinary psychosis. And I think most people in the Lacanian field would classify Schreber as an extraordinary psychosis. Mm -hmm. So I don't think he's threefold. But he does. I don't know. Again, I I haven't read the case uh, with, with this as much attention as you have. And I, I don't really even remember much of it. Obviously that you, you remember God fucking Schreber and Schreber, mm-hmm. his delusions begin with this idea. What would it be like to be fucked like a woman? What would it be like to not necessarily to be a woman, right? Even though that's part of the becoming woman, if you want to use that term uh, that, that he goes through. And in, in any case, I think that Schreber is, you know, one of the reasons why Coop and I focus on it so much is we, you know, he's so central to the opening of Anti-Oedipus 
And without Tim, I don't think things like Body Without Organs really works. I don't think you can just rely on our toes one mention of it, you know, in the poetic sense. I think you have to latch on to an actual case, you know, and in any case, you know, it's one of the case studies that I've always wanted to do with Coop that we haven't yet done is the fragment of analysis is the Dora case. And uh, you do, you know, excellent work on that in order to build your case about hysterization of the obsessional politics and and I, I guess you know because we have been talking for a while and and I and we we would like to wrap up my final question I'll give Coop a final one too would be can you say a little bit about something I found so provocative which was this notion that the analyst or even Lacan himself addressing his audience has to be kind of flexible and nimble because you can't sort of perform hysterical discourse for hysterics you have to give them a dose of of the obsessive whereas it's the other way around when you're addressing obsessives you you have to sort of wield a hysterization so you you kind of have to not give them what they're looking for right with the hysteric you're not the analyst you call it once like playing dead the analyst is not going to feed the hysterics desire to be a source of enjoyment for for the other or something like that whereas and then for the obsessionals you can't kind of give them what they're looking for which i forget exactly how you put it but it's well i'll, I'll let you take off because now i'm i don't want to muddy the waters i love the way you interpret my bullshit uh <laughs> i really i really do it's so much better you know i i'm i'm not happy with that book you know it was like my first major book in a you know, first thick book. And it was, um, I was, you know, I was really, you know what it was, it was honestly the product of me just trying to understand. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's not, that's not necessarily, necessarily an admirable goal for a person in the field of psychoanalysis. But, you know, I was reading all of Lacan's seminars, mm -hmm. not understanding anything. I, I spent two summers, I remember, before writing this book, reading everything that was in English that Lacan that was put out in the English uh, uh, world. And I didn't understand anything. And I just kept reading it. And, and this book is just, uh, in some sense, trying to formulate something from that. But I definitely don't agree with what I was saying there. Hmm. But I sense what maybe I was trying to say, and I okay. think you said it better than I could. I think, you know, I was still sort of thinking of the analyst in this role of interpreter, mm -hmm. interpreter of symptoms, interpreter of fantasies, and so on. Forget about constructions, interpreting at the level of meaning. And well, that makes sense then. You know, you have to be a little obsessional with a hysteric patient. You have to be a little hysteric to provoke the obsessional. And mm -hmm. the, it, it makes sense from the perspective of an analyst who interprets precisely because anything you say has to be meaningful. So you must try to provoke or you must try not to and so on. But when you're dealing with, I think, the contemporary clinic, what that really means is you're not interpreting anybody at all, at least not at the level of meaning. When you do, that's called the construction. But you're, you're using what Lacan called the equivoque, which is uh, sounds that are evocative. 
You're using lapses and enigmatic expressions and, and so on, which are not, you're not offering meaning. Whether that's an obsessional or hysteric doesn't make any difference in a sense. The, the obsessional can be, can be very quiet and withdrawn, but those silences can be meaningful. And when they do speak, they can, they can say something that, that resonates. And that's ultimately the goal, to make something resonate. Okay, I'll give an example. When I was in India, I studied Buddhism a little bit. I know it's a cliche, white guy goes to India. But I was studying Hinduism and Buddhism. And I learned that Buddha, there's this anecdote, I'm going to get it wrong, but a guy went up to Buddha and he asked a question. Now, while this is happening, there's this pervert hiding behind a tree listening and listening to the question and to Buddha's answer. Okay. So after they're done talking, the guy who was hiding behind the tree goes up to Buddha, asks the same question. Buddha gives him a completely different answer. And then he says, but I just heard you. You gave the other guy a different answer. Why are you giving me this answer? And Buddha's answer was, of course, because I told him what he needed to hear and I told you what you needed to hear. Unfortunately, I think when I wrote this book, I didn't have that sense. You know, I had the sense that you must talk to a hysteric a particular way. You must talk to an obsessional a particular way as if somehow you can know whether they're hysteric or obsessional. And these categories are somehow meaningful in guiding your orientation. I'm not of that opinion anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm of the opinion that interpretation can never be interpretation of interpretation because the, an the analystants by definition, is interpreting already. The analystant is an interpretive machine and can interpret to infinity. And the role of the analyst and the analyst's interpretation is to, in some sense, put an end to all of that, to open up a clearing, you know, to, to put an end mm. to the interpretations. And the way to do that is by making words resonate and mm. to use equivocate, equivoques. I always pronounce it wrong. And uh, I think that would be true of a hysteric just as much as an obsessional. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's so important to get rid of these categories. It's mm -hmm. a personal mm -hmm. conviction of mine, obsessional, hysteric. Uh, I don't, they're all crazy. We're all crazy. And to go, you know, one by one, case by case. I do this in my teaching too, another one of the impossible professions. When I'm teaching, every class that I teach is completely different. I basically, I'm hearing what people and the, the students are saying, and I'm finding out what kind of resonates there, and I'm using that Yes, in, in yeah. the classroom. So yeah, I think that's all. It's a really simple thing in the end, but that's all I think I was trying to get at when I was saying that. I just couldn't get there. It makes sense, I guess, the way you've, the way you formulate it or, or reformulated it now and you know, even if we have these categories, hysteric, obsessive, whatever, they should be shorthand, they should be collapsible, they should be flexible, and they shouldn't necessarily, obviously, you know, contaminate the, the waters beforehand. So we, you know, straitjacket people and pigeonhole them. I suppose I was thinking when I was reading your work about the, obviously, um, the four discourses and how they can be generated by counterclockwise rotations. And I was kind of thinking about how in everyday life, we kind of cycle through them. Maybe we aren't always in the analyst position and that might be the most extraordinary. It's hard to tell for, for each person, but I was kind of thinking about how we, we kind of circulate through them. And maybe we never perform any one of them in any 
because it is it does require another you know to you know we're and we're not always agents right we might be subject to a discourse rather than the the agent of it but you know i think that 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 kind of vibes with with what you're saying about these these categories as being perhaps uh restrictive or at least needing to be um provisional right at best but, but i think the situation could be even worse than this though hmm. as lacan said or worse <laughs> You know, because in the situation of dot, 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 or worse, which means the nom de pair or worse, foreclosure, in the situation of or worse, which is the times we're living in, I think we have the problem of discourse, you know, can you even say there's a discourse? I mean, I don't want to, I mean, what is discourse? For Lacan, discourse is that which constitutes a social bond. It constitutes a social link, right? And if there is a situation of psychosis, of madness. Well, we talked about social externality. What we have is a failure at the level of discourse. Discourse exists only where castration has been accepted. And so the difficulty is that, and this is, I think, why Lacan in the 1970s, you can see it really well in his television, he articulates a fifth discourse. It's the capitalist discourse, which is paradoxically this discourse, which is not one, or which is precisely one in the Lacanian sense of the term one, which means one without other. Where the other doesn't exist, you have one, which is why Lacan said there exists something of the one. The one is there where the non de pair isn't functioning, where you have foreclosure, where the big other doesn't exist, you have the one. And this is the worst situation. What capitalist discourse is, it's a mutation, as he put it in the dominant discourse, of which there is only one discourse. It's the discourse of mastery. The hysterics discourse is the discourse of mastery. The obsessionals discourse is, they're like, I'm in Russia. They're like what they call matryoshka dolls, mm. you know, those Russian stacking yeah. dolls. So what the capitalist discourse is, I would say, is a fleeting social link mm. at best. You know, how, what, what, how does it begin? It begins with the worst of situations, if I remember correctly. It's uh, S. Bard. Are you bringing it up on your screen? Um, we can. But yeah, I believe it starts with S. Okay. Bard. It, it, yeah, it's S. It's S. Bard, right? Which is not the old subject, the split subject that we saw in the in the Lacan of Schema L in the early period, Schema Z, and so on. It's oh, thank you so much. So it begins there. You notice there's no bar between the product. There's no bar on the bottom between the product and the truth, which is why Lacan said it moves fast, very fast. It's fast capitalism. It's the empire of speed. And what you have is, uh, this is this actually isn't the right one for it. It's, not, it's technically not agent, other product, truth. You have some different sort of classification systems that Lacan brings up, but that's okay. It's okay. Uh, and um, he talks about semblance, joissance, instead of- I see, okay. The, yeah. But anyway, so what you get is the split subject and the split subject is it's not attached to an other necessarily. Mm. It's attached to an S1, which is an S1 that temporarily provides it with some sort of stabilization, can give it maybe an affirmative S2, which is a word of wisdom. And maybe with luck, it'll give it some fleeting desire. Mm. I mean, that's a really no-nonsense, dirty interpretation of it, but it's not a discourse necessarily. 
And yet it can stabilize people. In fact, this article you have up right now by Van Hool, who's um, a very... Uh, I've seen very, you cite him. Yeah, I like, I like him. He even says, like, let's not just problematize this in, in cases of maybe uh, forms of psychosis. This discourse here, the capitalist discourse, could in fact be a mode of stabilization. I mean, let's let's presume I see. you go. What's really interesting, let's say it's the structure of addictions. Emphasis on addiction without speech. So what you get with addictions is a form of enjoyment that repeats and that when you go to your Lacanian psychoanalyst, maybe they're not trying to cure you because if they cure you from your addiction, you might have a full-blown psychosis. Right. And so there's something really paradoxical about this whole um, discourse that I find really interesting. And, and it's a shame that we don't have more development of it in Lacan's work. I wonder if he, if it was one of those sort of, I don't know, vanishing mediators between mm-hmm. his old idea of discourse theory and what he finally wanted to introduce, namely the Borromean knot and topology as you know, a movement from the math theme to topology to the Borromean knot as the, as the primary orienting I don't know what to call it, Figure? principle of, of okay. psychoanalysis, of clinical psychoanalysis. What you just said about addictions really quickly uh, is, is interesting because it reminds me of the first seminar when he's talking about Freud's papers on technique, which I reread for reading that volume last year. And it's there where Freud says at least a few times that when he takes on a new analysis, he takes on a new patient, he strongly urges them or urges them in a certain way not to take on any new big endeavors, new love interests, these other things that could come to fill that that lack or, or could come to be another prop that perhaps fills in the the void, if you will, that is evacuated with with going through working through the the talking cure. I'm not sure if that really or, holds well. But. It, it could be, or another way to read it, I don't know, mm-hmm. but another way to think about it is that he was introducing a prohibition. You can't do this, take on another whatever, you can't enjoy it. there where perhaps one was lacking. And a lot of people go to psychoanalysis today looking for prohibitions of those sorts. Deleuze and Guattari themselves even say like, when patients come to, to analysis, they, they already have all the Oedipal stuff. They don't, they, they ask for more of it, right? They're like more mommy, more daddy, you know, that, that kind of thing. So uh, that, that, that actually makes, makes a, a little bit of sense. Coop, did you, did you have one, one last, one last question to, to wrap us up? One brief question for Duane would be, I think, you know, we can we kind of share a certain similar trajectory relative to anarchism i would just be curious if you have any any reading in particular that you would suggest to me because i think like i said sort of at a similar place there um i'd just be curious if there's a thinker or someone that you would recommend even if it's something from Lacan or Badu or someone like that just a kind of general question i have been bugging him to read being an event with me so you know that's Although there are, there are tons of Badu's works. I, I, I particularly love um, his book on St. Paul. Obviously, the little book on ethics would go to some of the things you said about particular affirmations, right? That the event is not for, for just a small particular group of subjects, right? It's supposed to 
uh, the truth that evolves out of it uh, is supposed to be universal. Anyway. <laughs> I would say if it's counterintuitive, you know, they asked, somebody yelled out from the audience once and said, Lacan, are you an anarchist? And his response was, surely not. <laughs> and I, I, I admit I felt very bothered by this. I don't know why, because I've always had a troubled relationship with anarchism. Like as Bob Black used to say, my anarchism problem, you know, he claims like fascists are very capable of hiding out in anarchist communities. You have charismatic and, mm -hmm. and all this sort of. And so, you know, it, but I think that I do think Lacan offers a genuine anarchism, but it's not in anything you would read. It's in the experience. You know, it was Gustav Lander, I think, who really emphasized the experience of anarchism. Or I mentioned his name earlier, Alejandro de Acosta, who talked about direct action at the level of thought. And there's there's something there in, in the tradition of, of anarchism that lends itself to this. But ultimately, for me, I never finally got to the radical anarchist position that I wanted to, except through my personal psychoanalysis. And so what I'm reading there is not any book. I'm reading my unconscious and I discovered, you know what Sterner said? I'm sure you know this better than I do. I have a sense that you do. He said, our atheists are the most pious people. <laughs> and of course, Zizek being a Christian atheist, and I, I you know, for love once I was an atheist, I, I had to be an atheist. I was an atheist Muslim because you can be an atheist as long as it's in the past. It's, there's even that, that line from the Shahada, the testimony of faith. There is no God. You're an atheist for a brief moment, but Allah and the Prophet Muhammad is his messenger. And then you, you know, so an atheist, as long as it's in the past, which is quite different from in Christianity, where it's very much at the core or Judaism, where you can be an atheist at the end, as long as you were. But um, <laughs> I think that what's really interesting in psychoanalysis is that it gets you to this really fundamental not just at, at the level of, you know, what did Nietzsche say? I fear that as long as we still have grammar, we have not yet killed God. You know, this idea. I fear that as long as we still have universities and books, we have not yet, we have not yet killed the state, in a sense. You know, I think at some level, unfortunately, there needs to be the experience, emphasis on the prefix X, which means the the movement to the other scene of fundamentally confronting the beliefs you didn't know you already had, what Rumsfeld and Zizek call the unknown knowns, to get to the, the radical certainties that define our true inner dogmatisms. And this is where Zizek goes wrong. I think our problem isn't with the unknown knowns, it's with the known knowns, which are the new certainties that define the world. And I think we can only get that. And it's really unfortunate. We can only get it in a psychoanalysis. It led Zizek to write a piece for Crisis and Critique journal titled, I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I can't remember the title exactly, but can one exit the capitalist discourse, which is the dominant discourse today, without becoming a saint? And Ooh. for Lacan, the saint was the only way out of the system of mastery. The only way to be an anarchist was to be a saint, but a particular type of saint, the Saint Tom, Saint Tom, Saint saintly man, saint symptom. And to, to finally get to that position, Lacan said, it's not going to be very good 
it's a bleak, dark world. It's like mm. the last page of Max Weber's book, you know, where he says, ah, you're all fucked. Mm. And he just drops the cigarette, you know, like who will live in this world in the future? It's a dark world. You know, he basically says, you're all fucked at the end of his book, The Protestant Ethic. So I think for Lacan, his, he was very troubled by this possibility that mm. it's only going to happen for some. We can only have some anarchists. There cannot be for all anarchists. And, and that's, that's a really troubling conclusion for me. So my advice, I know it's a long, it took me a long time to get to it because I never know what the, what I'm going to say until after I say, it. but my, my advice, if I have any is, and I feel like I should be taking advice from the two of you. So forgive me for giving advice, but my advice is honestly psychoanalysis. It's um, I've had uh, only a few transformative experiences in my life. One was going to the European graduate school. Another was falling in love and converting to Islam and then having that relationship break in the most horrific way possible, but it was transformative. And the third was going into psychoanalysis. And I know that it has a bad rap among most people, particularly Delusians, but I think that uh, psychoanalysis is very, very delusional today. And it's an essential delusion. Coop and I, I think, are more on Guattari's side where he still he still claims that he still he still claims uh if i may paraphrase your words an absolute fidelity to like the freudian vision just <laughs> just um with jettisoning some of the things along the way even in antiedipus they they kind of want to recuperate the exploratory freud the discoverer, less so the the master, the one, the father of of psychoanalysis, who's trying to regulate and institute order, and who is having, you know, these 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 big fallouts and these, um, and who's trying to to sort of set up the the church of of analysis, and which I think you would you would agree is is something that Lacan, I think that you know, too, Lacan returns to Freud to also find some correctives. Maybe they're a little bit harsher to Freud than Lacan, but I think that, you know, Guattari shares that, that vision. And I think the only reason maybe he broke away from Lacan is that he saw himself as setting Lacan up as, as another master signifier, as another Freud, as a Freud substitute, as a father substitute. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. I love that very much. I, I was, it's a controversial claim because, you know, Lacan's return to Freud and all this sort of stuff. But I think Lacan was fundamentally asking not how to be Freudian. He had fidelity to the Freudian cause. In his return to Freud, it was a return to Freud's desire. And it wasn't the return to Freud. But the controversial claim is that Lacan wasn't a Freudian. I don't find too many people who agree with me on this. He was up to a particular moment. But, you know, it was endlessly, you go read Freud, you'll see what I mean. Yes. You know, he's like, he's like, he's always citing, we got to return to Freud, like this sort of thing. He's trying to find what's in Freud more than Freud or whatever. Mm -hmm. bullshit. You know? But what, what's interesting is that in the late Lacan, where are the Freudian references? I mean, uh, he's not returning to Freud anymore. I, it's, it's as if he became Lacanian. And, you know, I know he said, as for you, I'm Freudian and this sort of thing, but I think he was Lacanian. And I think it's it's finally where we see something of a pass in Lacan's own teaching, where he gets beyond Freud and he invents a style for himself. It does make sense that even early Lacan, his dissertation, his own clinic, 
dealing with psychotics more than Freud ever would, who obviously preferred neurotics. You know, there, there is a, there is a move. There is a, there is a, for better or worse, but there's something different. And so you're right to, to kind of say that, but you know, I know that Cooper and I, you know, we, we don't have the same experiences as you do, obviously with, with analysis, but we believe in, in, in the cause in its own way. And, you know, anti-Oedipus isn't necessarily like a life book. It's one of those, I always read it, that anti-Oedipus is one of the things that got me to read Freud and to investigate analysis rather than, than to make me shy away from it. So, you know, I think that that's, you know, we, I don't know if there are schizoanalysts practicing, if they ever were, but um, that's how I think that's all. But I would say in the, in the new Lacanian school, they might not Mm -hmm. say it. I think that's, that's all you have. I mean, in my, in my assessment, it's all schizoanalysis at this point. And that's why I always took schizoanalysis to not necessarily be the negation of analysis, but, you know, this a different emphasis. It's an emphasis on a different syllable, right? As, as we might say. So, <laughs> yeah. But Shall we Dwayne, end it there? Yeah. I know your headphones are dying and you yeah, spent, uh, you know, we, this is a long, <laughs> this is a longer session for us, but it was, it was so engaging. And uh, I'm, I'm so happy that, uh, that we got you on and, and just, just really enjoyed our discussion. I, uh, I did too, very much so. Thank, thank you both so much. This was really, really uh, stimulating. It, it, it's great. This is, this is, this is uh, the thing that we love to do. It's a great way to start the new year. Happy New Year, by the yeah, way. Absolutely, happy New, and, new Year. And uh, for Cooper and my sake, I will ask you soon. I'll probably remember once the episode comes out. I'll let you know, and then I'm going to ask you about how to audit your next class, which sounds <laughs> fabulous. I just want to say one thing. I had yes. a bunch of guests. I had a bunch of guest lectures come into. It was Andrew McLuhan, the grandson of of Marshall McLuhan. I had Cyrus Saint Amand Polyakov, who's in the Lacanian tradition, and I had a physicist, Louis Vervoort, come into my class to give these guest talks, and they kept calling me professor. I can't think of a greater insult a person in the psychoanalytic field than to be called a professor in the same way to have the two of you come into my class. I can't even imagine that doesn't, that doesn't sound fun. I'd rather, I'd rather have like recurring bullshit sessions like this. I would really very much enjoy that. Well, once your semester wraps up, maybe in the summer, we would love to, uh, we would love to Mm -hmm. talk to you again because this was a lot of fun and it's the perfect type of uh, content for our listeners. Oh, thanks folks. Thank you, Dwayne. Enjoy the rest of your night. Thank you. You too. Cheers.
Lobotomized people as in uh, block work or range. <laughs> <laughs>